Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 5, Episode 41. In this week's episode, we heard the first half, the first hour of my 2018 interview with Mr. David Jacoby. Uh, We got a lot of new information about David. I'm glad that you guys all finally got to hear the interview and got to hear what I heard and saw when I interviewed Dave, which is just the raw, real emotion in that man. And speaking of which, the YouTube video of part one should be live by the time you hear this. For contractual reasons, we have to make sure that the audio episode is out and reaches our download numbers that the advertisers pay for before I can put another version of it up that we have hit that. So I'm going to be putting that on YouTube. So it should be live. If you want to watch that interview, part one, it's live on YouTube. Just go to the Truth and Justice podcast YouTube channel. But all of you guys had a lot of questions and comments about the episode. I am joined remotely today by Mr. Mike Bussing. Hey, guys. And Mr. Zach Weaver. Hey, hey. Who may or may not be shirtless currently. We're not sure. We're not sure. So the Patreon folks, you guys will know as soon as I do whether or not Zach's wearing a shirt. And without any further ado, let's go ahead and get right into your guys' questions. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, our first question comes from Emily. Did David Jacoby say if Terry Hobbs had changed clothes on the night of the search or if there was mud in the truck? So, no, that, that is probably the most common question that we've, we've had since the airing of the, the TV series, actually. And we've been kind of waiting to hear David's interview before we really answer it. And the answer is, and I think it may be even in the second part, uh, but essentially, in my conversations outside of the interview, and and I'm sure in the interview too, I haven't listened back to it in a couple of years. David just doesn't remember, you know. And and he said, I, I mean, I, he's told me through tears when he's tried so hard. You know, it really frustrates David that he can't remember all the details that he thinks would really help. And when I've asked him about him changing clothes, and he's like, "No, people ask me that all the time. I've been asked that for years. 
I, I can't remember. He doesn't remember. Because keep in mind, David wasn't questioned about this for 14 years after after that night. You know, you know, as, as he said, uh, I think in this part of the interview, if not the next, you know, he's, he's like, you know, this happened. It was horrible. It was it was, you know, it, it changed their lives. They had to get out of the area. He was afraid to let his kids outside. And then, you know, within weeks, they they caught the murderers. You know, they caught the as far as he knew, they caught the three people who did it, you know, within a little while after that. So it it never occurred to him to scrutinize anything about Terry at that time because he it just never occurred to him that he would do anything like that. And then once they finally caught the West Memphis Three, then you know he thought that that, that it was over. There was no reason for him to focus on any of that stuff. So David said that he just doesn't remember. Uh, Terry Hobbs, on the, although, was actually asked about this in his deposition with the, the Dixie Chicks. And he's, if I remember correctly, he says that he did change clothes. And it, it's just more of, because I did recently watch all of that, and it's just a lot of material to get through. But, uh, you know, it, if you, the, that whole interview is worth a watch to watch just how dismissive Hobbs is, you know, because if I remember correctly, when they ask him, about changing clothes, he's like, oh, yeah, I did, or I might have, or yeah, I think I did, and well, why'd you do that? Well, because I felt like it, or I wanted to, you know, it's something like that, just real shit, there's no good reason why, and it, it's just, it's just another reason, well, that whole deposition is is full of reasons to think this, we need we need to do some, some DNA testing to find out if he should be looked at as a suspect, because he throws up constant red flags like that, you know, because the, the answer that you would normally expect to hear would be either I don't remember or no, I didn't or yeah, I did because it was cold or yeah, I did because there were mosquitoes, not yeah, I did. Why? Because I wanted to. All right. These next questions are from Fiona. Did David's wife and Jackie Hicks give statements about that night too? As memories change, I was wondering if David's account of the night now has changed at all from his account back then. The problem is there was no account back then. As I mentioned there, you know, David was never questioned by police. He uh, spoke to the officer at the, you know, down by the pipe bridge that night. But he never even saw the officer's face. He just, he spoke, he, he spoke through a window and he said, all he, said, all he could really see was the, the officer's hands as they were writing down what he was saying when he was telling them about the muddy footprints on the pipe. That was the entirety of his interaction with the police. And I have to look more about Jackie Hicks. Uh, if he was ever interviewed, I hadn't thought about that. But David was definitely never interviewed by police. I mean, Terry was never really interviewed by police. Back then, either. As far as David's wife goes, the same story. And I know there's a lot of questions about David's wife. I've met David's wife. I've had conversations with her, and and her memory is is even worse than David's about that night. And she she just basically provided no help one way or the other to anything other than you know to kind of she would confirm what David had said. You know that he was home that night most of the night, and then he you know he went out a couple times, but that's about as far as. As we got from them, so there's but there's no previous statements to compare them to from back in '93. That's the problem. Yeah, I've got some questions about the memories as well. You know, being that there's a long time lapse, how do we know that some of these memories haven't been manipulated by what he thinks? Or you know what I mean? Like, so he talks about seeing the muddy footprints on the pipe, and, and it sounds like that they talked about that that night. But they also talks about seeing like the bike tracks. Like, how how does he know that? How do we know that those aren't? manipulated memories like because they found the bikes later you know what i mean things like that right well we, to be honest with you we don't a, a lot of the memories could be wrong 
Uh, we we did a lot of myself. I said we mostly it was me, and then I brought in Jim Clementi to to review it afterwards. But I did a lot of work to try to narrow down these memories. See, at one point, David had written a statement uh, or an affidavit. Or, well, the way he said it, he signed an affidavit, it was written for him, and he signed it. But where it says that he, you know, it was seven thirty when he was down at the pipe. And, and, and the problem with that is it, it couldn't have been seven thirty. So what, what I did is something that Jim Clementi has trained me to do, which are what are called cognitive interviews. And those didn't. Somebody had asked on the fan page, you know, it, it sounds like sometimes I'm suggesting times that David's repeating them, you know, and they hope that I'm not doing what the police do, which is a valid question. But what was happening is, we're, you know, th- there was there was a lot of conversations that led up to us finally turning the microphone and the video on for this interview. And a lot of that was doing what we call cognitive interviews, which was literally trying to re- rely on sensory memories as markers as opposed to just uh, you, what you would call a cognitive memory, you know, where you just, where you're just, just something that logically makes sense because that's where your brain tends to connect dots for you. Yeah. So, you know, the, the way that we were able to find that the time was more like 8.30, 8.45 than 7.30 was that, you know, I, I had asked him, you know, okay, I want you to close your eyes. You think about, you know, smells, sound. You hear him talking about the set. He can hear when he can hear the, the water running. And a lot of us from the, you know, as the buildup of all these cognitive interviews and Jim, you know, noted when I had him on what last week or the week before to talk about David's interview. And he said, you could see he's, he's looking, he's pointing, he's, 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 ex- he's experiencing these things over again. But so like that time, you know, I said, so, okay, you said that was around 830 and he's like, yeah, why well, was or 845? The reason for that was because, and he, you heard him mention a little bit how he's watching the scarecrow on the, on his back fence, remember at night. Yeah. So that was because he was convinced. He's 100%. He's like, no, I know it was 7.30. I was, you know, he had talked to John Douglas. He had tried to recall, and that was at 7.30 when that happened. When I'm like, well, let's talk about that. What did it look like? What did it smell like? And he was like, I, you know, it smelled. You could you could smell kind of that musty kind of smell you have down in a in a swampy area. You could hear the water rushing. And I'm like, now look, what do you see with the pipe? You know, he's like, I could see these these blotches on the pipe. But it was, you know, it was too dark to really see any details. And, you know, I'm asking him, what did the sky look like at that point? You know, was it still light out? Was the sun still in the sky? And he's like, no, he's like, it, was, it was almost dark. The sky was like a deep purple. I could look across the pipe, which is maybe 40 feet, 30, 40 feet. And he's like, I, I could see shapes, but I couldn't make out details. Like it, it was it was almost dark. And so he, you know, in that, throughout that process, we say, okay, so that was, those are sensory memories that tend to be much more reliable than just like a logical thought, you know, that you where you think you remember something. And so with, with the, those sensory memories, he remembers what it sounded like, what it felt like. He remembers the mosquitoes biting him. And he remembers the lights were on at the Mayfair apartments when he comes out. And he remembers how dark it was. Well, then we use, we use that and say, okay, now let's look at when did, the sky and the conditions outside look like what you're describing. So we look at, okay, what he was describing is called nautical twilight. So, so for the, a lot of people think when the sun sets, it's dark. That's not true. Watch tonight. Look, look at your, you know, go online and look and see what time sunset is tonight. Uh, I can tell you it's on my watch tonight here in Michigan. The sun sets at 8.42 p.m. So it's not dark at 8.42 p.m. 
At 8.42 p.m., the sun's out of the sky, but it's still light out. And then you have 30 minutes of what they call civil twilight. And that's where it's still pretty light out. You can still see pretty well uh, outside. As a matter of fact, like that's how uh, most states do uh, hunting hours, which is why I have that on my, on my phone. You know, as, as, a, as, a, as a hunter, there's a, there's a legal time of how long you can, you can still hunt. And it's for like deer, it's 30 minutes after sunset. And that is the amount of time where the state says it's still safe for you to shoot an animal, which means it's still light enough at that time for you to see an animal, be able to clearly tell what it is, be able to clearly tell if it has antlers or it doesn't have antlers. And even there's antler point restrictions here. So you can still see well enough to know if it has three points or four points on one side of its antlers. And then after 30 minutes after sunset, that's the end of civil twilight, and that's when they say it's it's no longer safe to shoot at that point. Then the next 30 minutes is called nautical twilight, and that's when it starts to get dark, dark, and the sky starts to turn purple like David described. And right at the end of that is when it's it's just exactly like David described. Sky is purple. If you look, you can see shapes, but you can't make out details. It's hard to colors start to blur together. So using all of that long-winded way of saying, if you take all of that, and then take the, the the information we know from that night, which is that the sun set at 7.51 p.m., which means 7.30 couldn't have been the time because the sun wasn't even set yet. It was still broad daylight at that point. And if we look and say what he's describing should be 45 minutes to an hour after sunset, then we can move that up now to say it was you know sometime around 8.30, 8.45. And then we had other markers we could compare that to as well. Uh, like when he came up, that there was an, a police officer up there, and people were starting to search up by the Mayfair apartments by the dead end. Well, we we know from the dispatch logs that you know if you look at Regina Meek's testimony, it's all over the place, and I don't think it's reliable at all, just because it, it it's clearly a lot of it's clearly provably false. But we do know that at 8:08 she went to Mark Byer's house and took the missing persons report. She cleared there, I think, at 8:29, if I'm not mistaken. Comes outside, sees Dana Moore, talks talks to her for a minute. Says she goes down to the pipe, so now it's right. It's after eight thirty. Now she gets to the pipe, and we know at eight forty two she was dispatched to Bojangles. So David coming out and seeing a police officer up there had to have been in that eight thirty to eight forty time frame because that's the only time there's a police officer there. So we use all of those factors to to figure. It, and this is all was done pre this interview that the time that he made it to the pipe had to have been between eight thirty. And 840, really 842, because that's when when we know Regina Meek cleared the scene. Uh, and then we backtrack from there. Now, as far as, you know, how do we know how reliable the memories are? There's a lot of them that I would say that aren't super reliable. You know, like he remembers uh, where exactly they drove when they searched. But, you know, he struggled with that. He struggled with it with me previous to the interview. There, you know, in our pre-interview time, we actually had a map out and he was looking and drawing out. Okay, I think we turned here. I remember going by. This flash market, we stopped by the store at 7th and Barton. So we had some markers. And then basically we had, then I actually went and drove the routes he told me about to, to try to narrow down about, and then, and then later I drove those routes with him to try to narrow down the amount of time it took to do those searches. But they're definitely not accurate. So we, we, have, we have a marker at the end. We know that he found the muddy footprints at the pipe at about 8.30 to 8.40. All of the evidence indicates that it was at that time, and we know that he got he did get off work at four thirty and he got home at five. That was a standard routine he did every single day. He was home by five 
and that that Terry had come by. So as far as the the rest of the details, based on Jim's assessment, watching his his video of him recalling these events, he certainly seems to be reaching back and recalling and reliving actual events that he experienced as opposed to watching someone who's trying to think of uh, of what exactly happened. So I think his, his memories are more reliable than a lot of people's based on that information and the way that he's he's remembering them. But definitely I will concede that you know we can't 100% say, well, Dave said it because it's true because there's a the fact that the memories could be manipulated. And as much as I don't believe this, but we can't throw it out is the fact that he could be lying too. Yeah, I don't think he's necessarily lying in, in my opinion. I just I just worry about the memories being true. I, I just try to stay open minded. I just I, I again I don't feel like he's associated with it, but I also you know it's hard to believe all those memories are spot on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I totally understand. And the, the one of the things that really rang as veracity with David with me was in all of our interviews on the TV show, on the podcast that you're hearing, and just through our other conversations and interviews we've done is his willingness to admit when he doesn't remember something you know i mean he's never trying to fill in blanks if he's just if you know for example the clothes did terry terry change clothes and he's just like i don't i don't know he might you know instead of saying no he didn't or yes he did or i think he says i don't know i don't remember he just wasn't paying attention to his clothes so he just doesn't know so those are other indicators of, of truthfulness is you know they're not trying to sell you anything they're doing their best so I believe with 100% assurity, in my opinion, the story David is telling me is the story that he believes to be true. Yeah. But as you mentioned, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's entirely accurate because memories can be manipulated. Fiona's next question is, she's wondering why David said that he didn't know many people in the area, especially as he has seven kids. You usually get to know the people because of your children, whether you like it or not. How did he know Terry and Pam? Presumably they were good friends if they used to look after Amanda a lot. So that's a good question. Uh, a couple of people asked that. David hadn't lived in West Memphis for very long at this point. And there's there's a lot of different things. So David worked a lot. And let me back up. How did he know uh, Terry and Pam? So Pam and David are from the same town. They're both from Blytheville, Arkansas, which is about an hour north of of West Memphis. So they knew th- each other there from from back, and not Terry, just Pam and David knew each other from back when they lived in Blytheville. And then uh, Pam had, had married Terry, and they had moved to West Memphis. Later, David then and his family, his wife Bobby and his kids had, and I don't think they had all seven kids at that point, by the way, but they had uh, moved back to, uh, or moved down to West Memphis. And they ended up in the same neighborhood as Pam and Terry. So when they, when they got there, of course, th- those were the only people they knew were, were Pam and Terry, who lived just right around the corner from them. So they spent some time with them. But they hadn't been there that long. I'm trying to remember. I know in the video he said Victoria was a baby then. I'm trying to. I've met Victoria. I've met a couple of David's kids. Uh, I've met her. And, yeah, she would have been. She's got to be right around 26, 27 years old. And I, I think she's got some younger siblings too. So that, yeah, anyway, I don't think they had all seven kids yet at, the, at that point. And also, as you heard David say, his kids, he sent them to a private school, uh, which I don't believe was in, and I'll have to check with David for clarification on this, but I believe he said, that, I don't think it was, the school they went to was in West Memphis. I want to say it was either in Memphis or it was 
It might have been a one. Anyway, they didn't go to the public school that was right there in the neighborhood where all the other parents in that area lived. And then also David worked a lot. And so Bobby, his wife, was was really the one doing a lot more with the, you know, with the kids at schools and stuff. David was like a, an iron worker. And just during that summer, he had he was delivering ice cream. He worked at the same place as Terry. He was just looking for a break from all the welding and all that stuff. And so he had spent that summer doing that work. Uh, and that's what he was doing at the time when when all this happened. So th- that's why they hadn't been there very long. Uh, the kids didn't go to the school that was right there in the nucleus of the neighborhood, Weaver Elementary. They went to a private school elsewhere. Uh, and and the relationship was David grew up with Pam in a different town, and then he met Terry because you know Pam married Terry. All right, this next one's from Julie. What do you think about the fact that Terry Hobbs never acknowledges he stops at David's house to play guitar with him for 45 minutes to an hour after dropping Pam off, either in his police interview or his recently published book? Well, he, but in, in his deposition with the Dixie Chicks, he, how does he put it? I think he, he just doesn't deny it. I think they ask him, well, you know, would David be lying if he said you guys played guitars? And, and he's basically like, no, I, I can't say that. I just don't remember. But I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to think back. As far as I know, the only time that he has admitted it was in the in that deposition. I think with with the police, he never. I don't think he was questioned about it with the police. Don't quote me on that because I might have to go back and listen to it again or watch it again. His police interview from 2007, uh, "Box Full of Nightmares," is Terry Hobbs' book. I actually have the book. I started reading it and I just I couldn't get through it. He told me about it when we had lunch together. And it's, it's he basically the book is he says that he's kept a journal throughout this entire time from the time Stevie was killed and through now and is uh, a relative, a sister or cousin or something of his or niece uh, wrote the book for him based on his journals in that book, evidently, which, I, as I said, I've been I haven't read it all yet, but uh, I've been told from people who have that he he says that he never played cards with or guitars with David that day. But like I said, you know, he, he he didn't mention it with the police. In the deposition, they said, well, David says you were, or you're saying he's lying. He's, oh, no, I could have been. I don't know. I don't remember. Maybe. And then uh, and he writes a book and says that it never happened. So I don't know what I what I make of it. I don't know. I, and that could be, again, that doesn't necessarily mean Terry Hobbs committed the crime. It could just be he doesn't want people to know that he was playing guitars while his stepson was missing. And, and a, lot of the, a lot of the questions we have about Terry's behavior, you have to keep in mind, this didn't start out at 5 p.m. The alarm bells are going off that the kids have been taken and they're missing or they're murdered. It it started off as Stevie just didn't, you know, it was wandering around the neighborhood playing and didn't return home when he was supposed to. So just I do want to say that I I don't fall even for the, you know, if David's story is accurate and Terry came by looking for Stevie and then he sat down and played guitars for a few minutes. First of all, David says that Terry was concerned. He was looking for Stevie. That's why he was there. You know, that he'd went home, Stevie wasn't still wasn't there, stopped by there to see if Stevie was. So he was looking for him. But but nobody was, you know, nobody thought something terrible had happened at that point. I think that they just, you know, just thought that he's still out playing and maybe he's going to be in trouble because he didn't come home when he was supposed to. So just keep that in mind that it wasn't until, you know, it basically got to be about dark time where people started saying, "Okay, something's seriously wrong here." First of all, it's not one, it's three. We've been around the whole neighborhood and nobody can find him. Now, then people were very concerned. But in 1993, in a neighborhood like that, 
the fact that your kids are out riding bikes together and they're supposed to be home at four thirty and they don't and they're not home by five or five thirty wouldn't necessarily have raised any serious alarm bells yet. Maybe in two thousand twenty, but not in nineteen ninety three. You know, Zach and you know, we don't live we don't live in the same neighborhood anymore, but we used to live for a few years. We lived in the same little subdivision and mm-hmm. we both had kids ex- exactly you know I just moved away last summer when both of our kids were 8 years old yep and we're at bike riding age and how many times did I pop over to your house and be like is Parker here uh yeah multiple times or I'd get a text message oh yeah it happened a lot yeah so, so I, I always think about that when I think you know when people are you know hindsight looking back at this like like why was there nobody alarm, the alarm bells going up even in 2019 last year in our little neighborhood you know, there was Parker would play with with Zach's boy Maddox. Um, they were the same age. There was a couple other boys uh, and girls around the neighborhood, and they all would ride bikes and stuff. And what would happen is they'd go out screwing around. And I would tell Parker, you know, you need you can play for a little bit. You need to come home for dinner. And sure enough, he would take off. And then you know, I think he's at Zach's. And then I go, you know, stop by Zach's to look for him. He's not there. And then you know, start texting all the parents. Mm-hmm. And drive. I've even had many times had to drive around and find him out, you know, jumping on a trampoline in somebody's backyard on the other side of the neighborhood. That seems to happen a lot in this neighborhood. Yeah. So it's just, you know, it's just a little anecdote, but it's, 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 I, I always just try to use that in my, cause yeah, I like to read it and, you know, I know the boys were murdered. So I'm like, you know, even with Dave, and I think David even, you hear the guilt in his mind because he said, you know, Terry said, I better look for the kids. And David was like, well, just, Leave your truck at the end of the driveway. He'll see it. He'll know you're here and come in and help me with this. You know, David still, he beats himself up to death over that. He feels that if he hadn't done that, maybe things would have turned out differently. That if he had just let Terry go and, and look for Stevie, that maybe things would have, would have been, you know, would have ended differently. And he, and he, he's all that guilt. And, and I've tried to remind him of the same thing. Like, look, like you didn't, no one knew this was going to happen. And I can totally, see that happening and like like i said it, slightly different situation but i'm sure there were times where i stopped by looking for parker and you were like no nah, they ran off with so and so on the bike that way and i stood there and chatted with you and michelle for a few minutes when i should have been out looking for parker oh absolutely with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. This one's from Donna. Bob, can you clean up a bit the timeline of that evening according to David? It's quite hard to follow. I know that you've gone through it many times, but having David Jacoby go through it kind of brought it to life, like being able to really get a sense of what it was like that evening with emotions, lighting, etc. Yeah, as a listener, I was, uh, I'm was i a little perplexed on the timeline from David um, just because of the conversation. I mean, I know the the proposed timeline and it's, some of it's hard to follow, so I'm glad this was asked and someone, and then you can kind of clear it up for us. 
Yeah, I, I hope so. So let me let me let me explain something else too. So a lot of people have asked, what's the plan here? You know, when are we getting into season eight? And you know, because the, the, we were not plan the, the TV show airing when it did wasn't part of the plan. So um, when are we going to do season eight? I'm trying to figure out how to end, how to wrap things up. And the reason I'm saying that is because what I've been thinking about doing, and I haven't even asked him yet or reached out to him, is if anybody that's on the fan page knows. Uh, there's a guy that posts there a lot who has some great posts all the time named Wendell Mass. Wendell, so, so thing one, if you're on Facebook, go to the fan page, search Wendell Mass. He put out an, an incredibly detailed post about the timeline. And he took everything David said, things that he had said in the past, and compared them to the record. Thing. So things like I was talking about, like when Regina Meek was at, at the pipe and things like that. He compared all that all the evidence to try to come up with a good solid timeline based on facts that we 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 know. That post very detailed, read it, it's long, it's it's very very well done. But I what I'd like to do and I'm really thinking on the fly right now is next week is to maybe have Wendell come on and help explain that cuz he can actually explain it better than I can. It, it, anyways, but as far as the timeline goes, the basic Bones of the timeline are this. David got off work at 4.30, got home about 5, takes off his shoes, says hi to the kids for a minute, sit down, smokes a cigarette, relaxes, you know, maybe starts picking on his guitar. So hold on one second. And, and so we say he gets off work at 4.30 and arrives home at 5. Is, is that verifiable? I mean, do we know how long it would take him to get home? Well, he was, he worked in Memphis and... um drove home so you can get to memphis from memphis to his house i know in like 20 minutes maybe okay so it's about right yeah if he got off at 4 30 been there he would have been there shortly before five and so as a, he, he gets home he you know kicks his boots off says hi to the kids smokes a cigarette pours a glass of tea and starts picking on his guitar and terry knocks on the door and so that's somewhere around say 5 15 maybe 5 30 somewhere around there uh, so Terry shows up and says, Hey, have you seen Stevie? And he says, no. And he said, well, he had, you know, he had, he had dropped Pam off of work. He was supposed to be home by four 30. He's not home. Maybe he thought maybe he was here indicating that Terry had dropped Pam off, went back to the house. And, and we also know that Terry and Pam had stopped at the Moore house on the way, uh, uh Michael Moore's house on the way to drop her at work. And Dawn was there alone, their daughter. Was that all comes into some of the stuff that that Wendell was posting as well? But anyway, get, getting back to this, so they so it's it's a little after five, and that's when David says, "Well, no, I haven't seen him, but if he rides by here, just leave your truck there at the end of the driveway, and he'll see your truck. And can you help me play the song?" So they sit down for a little bit. Dave's not sure how long it could have been twenty minutes. Could you know? And, and these are, these are some of the times that we just really can't verify. You know, uh, he's told me that maybe they played for twenty minutes, maybe they played for thirty minutes, maybe they played for forty five minutes. And also, we don't know exactly when it was Terry got there, but um, but they play for a little while, and then sometime I think we figured somewhere around quarter to six or something like that, or maybe sooner. Terry says Terry leaves. Says I I'm, I need to go check and see if Stevie went home. So he leaves, and then he comes back a few minutes later and says, you know, he drove around and 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 Stevie's not home. He doesn't know where he's at. And I I think it sounds like the from a, David thinks he remembers, but he's he can't be sure. That the reason that he returned back was to see if if they could watch Amanda while he continued to search. 
Uh, he's not sure. Just in our conversations, again, David has said he doesn't particularly, he doesn't know for sure. He knows they watched her at some point that day, but he thinks he, he, he didn't go back to David's house to say, hey, can you help me search? So I think the reason he went back to the house was to say, can you watch Amanda? I, I need to go search. I can't find him. And David says, well, let me, let me go with you. And they hop in the truck and they go search together. That's when they make the, they, they make a trip. They drive around town. He kind of maps it out. Um, listener Matt Elliott uh, made a YouTube video uh, trying to track some of these movements. If that'll help anybody, look on the fan page or look him up on YouTube to try to find his movement video. But they drive around. So at this point, so we're talking, you know, somewhere around six o'clock. They get and they they drive around the neighborhood. They look all over, don't see him, and then Terry drops David back off at the house and says, "All right, well, he's going to go back home see if he's there again." And so they think David thinks that was somewhere around six thirty, you know, and that that's based on us kind of just blocking out how long did the trip take, what time did he get off work, how long did they play guitars, somewhere around six thirty. Terry drops David back off at the house and then takes off, and then working backwards from when he saw the muddy footprints on the pipe, which we think was about 8.35, 8.40, and how long he was walking in the woods to how long they were driving around. It comes to about maybe 8, 8.10 when, and there's some other factors in there too, as far as from things we know from our interview with, with uh, Dawn Moore last year, two years ago, how she says that Dana stopped and knocked on Terry's door and talked to him right before they went and gave their interview to uh, or met with Regina Meek when she left Mark Byers' house, which that was around 8.29 p.m. So somewhere after 8, according to Dawn, Donna, Dawn and Dana stopped by Terry's house. He was at home at that point, which is worth noting, uh, according to Dawn. And then they leave, and then it's right after that when Terry comes back to David's house to get him. But again, he didn't go there. To get him, you talk to David, he didn't come and say, hey, will you come help me finish searching? I think that what happened was as he dropped by and said, can I stop and get, uh, came by to pick back up Amanda or drop off Amanda, but he had just been home. So my my theory is that that trip back to David's house after 8 p.m. was him coming by to pick Amanda up. When David realized he still hadn't found Stevie, he jumps back in the truck with him again. And they go take off and start searching again. And that's when they end up. They stop by the store at 7th and Barton. A little girl says they saw some boys on bikes heading up that way. They head up towards the pipe. They get out. David goes walking through Robin Hood Woods with some teenagers. And then they uh, he ends up down by the pipe at that point. Comes back out. Regina Meek's out there. There's a police officer out there. John Mark Byers is out there. And another woman. Terry's out there in that area. And so the the basis of that the timeline, kind of the most important part, is that sometime around six thirty, could be six fifteen, could be six forty five, could be as late as seven even. I don't think it would push that far, but six thirty ish. Terry dropped David off, and then sometime after eight p.m., Terry goes back to David's house and picks him up, and that's when they go searching. So from about six thirty till eight p.m. We don't know where Terry was, according to David Jacoby's timeline. And we don't believe anybody has crossed the pipe bridge at that point either, right? I mean, the the muddy footprints are there, but I mean like searchers. No, no one had, as far as we know, no one had been over there. So so the alarm bells hadn't really been raised. So it was Mark Myers was the first one to raise the alarm. You know, he at about seven, 
he talks to the cop down at the Big Star Mart or wherever, and they tell him, "All oh, just wait a little bit, see if they turn up. At about 8, finally he gets back home. You know, he's been with Melissa and Ryan this whole time searching. At 8, he calls and says, I want to make it, you know, it calls the police again. And at 8.08, Regina Meek arrives at his house. That's when they give the report. So now at this point, Mark Byers is giving a report that Chris is missing. As far as he knows, it's only Chris. Now, as far as Terry knows, it's supposedly at this point, it's only Stevie missing. They don't know they're together. And Dana Moore, somewhere around 6-ish, 6.30-ish, had seen all three boys together. She's the only one that knew they were together. So when when Meek then leaves Byer's house, which is at 8.29, Dana Moore comes from across the street and says, hey, Michael's missing too. I saw all three of these boys headed that way. And that's when Meek goes to the end of the pipe bridge. So at that point, we know that Mark, Byers, Melissa, and Ryan had not crossed the pipe. They had not even searched in that area. They'd been in their vehicles the whole time searching. Dana Moore, Dawn Moore, you know, Dana Moore's stories have changed wildly over the over the years too. But according to if you've kind of pieced together the verifiable parts of his her story and the verifiable parts of Dawn's story, you know, they had driven around a little bit. They actually went after they saw the boys go north and got went and got a, a sandwich, a hamburger somewhere. They went and ate. Then swung by Stevie's house. So th- their alarm bells weren't going off. They assumed that, oh, Michael didn't come home. He must have went back down to Stevie's. So they went down there. Uh, and then Terry has never said that he he never got out of the truck. They just drove around, according to what he says. So, yeah, so nobody as far as – and other than that, no one knows the boys are missing. So when David gets to that pipe at 830, that's the first anybody had been to the pipe as far as legitimately searching, obviously someone had been to the pipe. Someone murdered the boys during that that period of time. But when David got there, so from the, when he went into the woods to start following the bike tracks through the trails in Robin Hood Woods, there was no police officers. There was nobody else there. It was it was um, excuse me. There were other people there. Uh, there was him and Terry, and then there were some teenagers, which was Ryan Clark. We believe it was Ryan Clark and his friends that he had asked to go down. And and are, they asked them to help him look. And the teenagers went with David and followed him as he followed the bike tracks. And then as he gets down to the pipe, that's when he sees the muddy tracks. While he was on his way to the pipe is when Regina Meek would have pulled up when Mark Byers and maybe Melissa had come out to the uh, the dead end road there where they were all starting to look, search in the Robin Hood area. And they come up and he tells the police. So no, at that point, no searchers had been across that pipe. No one, no one would have known to go across that pipe. David is the first one that ended up to the pipe. Now, again, I want to keep stressing the fact that when I say no one went across the pipe, I'm talking about legitimate searchers. Obviously, again, the person that had killed the boys did cross that pipe in that period of time. Sometime between when, when, when Dana Moore saw the boys headed north, which was a little after 6.15, and then we have Ben Crafton and Kim Williams and Carlos Seals that say around 6.30, they saw the boys headed into the woods. So sometime after that 6.30 mark and when David Jacoby gets down to the pipe at about 8.30, 8.35 and sees the muddy footprint, it was in that window that they were killed. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lara says, I've noticed folks saying that David Jacoby investigated a manhole near the site years later and took pictures, etc. Bob, can you confirm if David was as involved afterwards as folks are implying, talking about the case online and revisiting the site, etc.? To me, that doesn't seem logical based upon his demeanor in your interview. If it's true that he stayed involved, what is your opinion or interpretation of that behavior? He didn't stay involved. What happened was, you know, again, David thought this was all over in 1993. Never, you know, obviously it's something that haunted him, but, you know, he was very close with Stevie and, and the whole experience was rough on him. But, you know, as far as he knew, it was over. 2007 comes along and that's when he gets drug into this. When Terry uses him as an alibi, the West of Memphis, John Crew, John Douglas, all of them, they come interview him. He gives DNA samples. In the second half of this interview, you're going to hear some of the things that he did to try to help along the way. But that's when he, he got more into it and his name was brought into it. And some people online, you know, had that were discussing the case on Facebook or wherever, uh, had reached out to him and had kind of become friends with him. And you know, there was a lot of people at the time saying David Jacoby was a child murderer. And so there were people out there saying, you know, I, I don't believe you were, and we're supporting him. I, you know, I think he, he, that's why he became friends with some of those people online. Well, then some of those same people. Uh, either them or people they were associated with had this theory about this manhole. So he he had gotten involved in some of these groups then because of some some supporters of him had drug him in. But this this is 14 years later. He hadn't stayed involved in for all these years. This all just kind of came up when his name was thrown out into the public. And one of the people that 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 he was talking to again, or I think it was someone who was associated with one of the people who he had become friends with. You know, they they wanted to look at. This this manhole theory, and they they needed somebody local to to check out the area and take some pictures of some culvert or pipe that's out there, and and David you know agreed to since he was in the area that he would go do it and he's you know he he described that experience to me it was weird he said he had never uh, he had never actually been there you know he had he had been across the across the bayou on the service road and skirted the edge of those woods when him and Jackie Hicks went down to the pipe to try to pick up the bike tracks. But he never actually went into the woods. You know, he was in them a little bit, just on the on the west side of the woods. But he'd never been down to the actual ditch where the discovery site was. And so he he went there and he and he found this manhole and he found this culvert and took pictures for this person online. But that was the extent of his involvement in that. Emma says the theory is that the killer wanted to conceal the bodies due to a known personal relationship, and he seems to have put a lot of effort into concealing them, undressing them, hiding them in the water, etc but also that the killer might have wanted to get someone to, quote, find the bodies with him. How did he hope to have someone find the bodies when he also did a pretty good job of hiding them? Can you explain how both of these could be true? Yeah, well, I mean, we don't know that anybody, you know, we we obviously heard the disturbing story that David told us about Terry, but we don't know that that's what was happening. Let's, we, ha- we have to keep in mind this could be legitimate. Stepdad wanted to look that way and, and something spooked him back there. But prior to us knowing that, or prior to like Jim knowing that, who's the one that, that discussed a lot of this stuff, you know, the the body concealment happens. So, th- so we're talking about not just this case, any case. Immediately after a murder is committed, 
there's a moment of panic and then there are actions that need to be taken. And th- it's in those moments of panic where people uh, reveal themselves through their behaviors. You know, you just murdered somebody. So, th- so in this case, this person has murdered three eight-year-old boys. There's three eight-year-old boys laying there dead at their hands. They're in broad daylight in, a, in the middle of a public area. Something has to be done. And this is where their behavior leaks out information about them. Because say say this was a random truck driver at the Blue Beacon truck wash. Their reaction to that is, oh shit, I got to get away from here right now. And they run up the hill, they jump in their truck, and they drive away, and they're in Louisiana before anybody knows anything happened. That's how we know, or our, the our profile would indicate, that this was someone with a known personal relationship to the boys. Because there was a reason that their instinct was to hide these bodies. And the reason for that is that either, and there's, there's two facets of this, either people know that they were with those boys or are expected to have been with those boys, or they believe that people could know they were with those boys. My opinion is that's what happened here. This person went to the pipe, across the pipe, and into those woods, not expecting to commit murder. And therefore, they weren't paying attention to who was watching them, but they know they were in a public area. So now they've killed the boys. They're in this in in this area. They're they're down. They're, they're trapped. They're in this tiny little patch of woods. They have these three dead bodies. And as far as they know, someone could have seen them go into that area. So then the immediate reaction is they can't find these bodies. If somebody finds the bodies here, and people saw me coming here. They're going to know that I did it. So then they start to they 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 revert to things we know. That's why we 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 talked about uh, in both my profile two years ago and Jim's recent profile that I think this was a, a hunter or somebody who worked in a butcher shop because the the way the bodies were tied was was the same way you would use to package meat to 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 lower the the space to, to limit the amount of space that a body takes up. Uh, but so they 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 strip the. I, my personal belief is. They tried to get the bodies to stay under the water. Their clothes were causing them to catch the current and float up. That's why they were then stripped, tied, put down. The clothes were hidden very hastily. You know, people were like it was done, you know, very methodically. It was to an extent, but you know, we talk about the uh, Steve Jones, the the probation officer, who when he was searching the creek saw a shoe floating. But in the crime scene photos, we see it wasn't just a shoe. Michael Moore's hat, which was had foam in it. There was a couple shoes. There was a few things that had floated up and caught in the in the branches. It wasn't just one shoe, and everything else was concealed. There was an attempt made, but so th- so that behavior is happening in that moment of panic, which is I need to not let people find these bodies here, and I need them to uh, I need to create some distance between myself before these bodies are found. So this happens. They conceal the bodies. They get out of there. Once that person is then. Out of the area. Now, again, we're talking about, we're not talking about Terry Hobbs here. We're saying an, an unsub with a known personal relationship who thinks people may have seen him walk into those woods with those boys or behind those boys. So this person conceals the bodies. They get out and they do what was intended to be done with the body concealment, meaning they have gotten away from the bodies. They managed to do that. Nobody knows anything happened. They're able to clean up, change clothes. Now, you know, some, some time has passed. And then they engage in the search. And we would know, I would think they would engage in the search because, again, this is somebody we think has an authoritative known relationship to the boys. So obviously they would be part of the search effort. So then they get into the search effort. And then 
what we see, and this is based on Jim and other profilers and, you, and just, just any study of crimes just like this, where you know, uh, the John Bonet Ramsey case is another good example. You know, there's a lot of theories out there, but one of the theories is that this was an inside job. Either one of the parents or the brother or somebody actually murdered John Bonet Ramsey, probably an accident, and they tried to stage it to look like someone else did it. And and there's been talk of how John Ramsey, the the father, discovered he 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 went searching the house with his friend, and then goes into the area where John Bonet's body was. And according to the friend, even before the light was turned on, he walks in and is like, "Oh no, there she is." That's a common thing that happens where it, when in it, and I'm not saying that's what happened in that case, but in a lot of cases, you see where then it turns out to be the person that discovered them in that way is actually the person that killed them. And for some reason in their minds, so in that case, let, let's say, for example, if John Ramsey is the one who, or not that he killed, but but let's say that that was a staged break-in, the JonBenet Ramsey case. So he brings his friend with him because he wants somebody to be able to say, oh, I saw him and I saw how shocked he was to find the body, to find her body there. So it would be the same thing, even though he in this scenario, this hypothetical scenario, would have been the one who put her body there, who staged it to look that way. He did the concealment. He knows that she's there. He still then later, once he's created that distance and has and has tried to make it look like something else happened, then he wants to go back and be witness discovering the bodies. So in this case, if you had the, the unsub murdered the boys, concealed their bodies in the water, used that to create their distance, now they've joined the search party, now, if they go in, because imagine how nerve-wracking it is knowing all these people are searching for these boys. We know this the, the person who killed them knows where the bodies are, knows they're dead, and knows at some point somebody's going to find them and still doesn't know if anybody else saw that person in the woods between that 6.30 and, and 7.30 window when the boys were killed. They don't know if anybody had seen him there. And so... It's it's the re the, what they'll do is oftentimes statistically this is things things that have happened over study of thousands of of homicide cases is then they'll get somebody to go with them they'll go down and they'll want to be the ones to find the body so that it it almost is an idea that it will it will shine the light away from them because they were just so shocked and distraught when they found these bodies there uh, as opposed to waiting back letting somebody else find them and the people are like hey I saw him in the woods. You know, a couple hours ago, they're not looking at them because it was witnessed. Oh, I was there. I saw him. He was so upset when it happened. So that's why those two things absolutely can fit together and oftentimes do fit together in cases just like this one. Claire wants to know, do you plan to release a transcript of your interview with Terry Hobbs? No, I. Uh, good question. But no, so there, it wasn't an interview. Uh, my meeting with Terry Hobbs was off the record. So there, I mean... I, I didn't take any notes. I didn't record anything. The deal was we'd message back and forth. I told him, you know, I would really like to interview him, and and I asked him if he'd be willing to sit down and and have a meal with me, or we or a drink or whatever we could talk. He invited me to Memphis to share a meal with him. He bought me dinner at this barbecue place. We had a conversation, and then he denied the interview. But the deal was that that meeting was was off the record. Uh, so no, there's no, there's no transcript. It wasn't an official interview in any capacity. All right. And our last question comes from Kayla. Can we send David Jacoby some positivity, some things to put a smile on his face, maybe a nice letter or something like that? 
Yeah, so a lot of people have asked about that, and you absolutely can. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not going to give out David's address on the, on the podcast. So this is what I would suggest doing. I've mentioned this on social media. But if you would like to send David a letter or a card or even an email, you can always send it to our show email. But as far as if you want to send a physical letter or a card, what you need to do is just mail that to our P.O. Box, which is on our website. It's uh, just send it to Truth and Justice Podcast, P.O. Box 75, Riverside, Michigan, 49084. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, it's a new P.O. Box. But uh, but look at the – if you just go to truthandjusticepod.com, our website, you'll see our mailing address there. So if you want to send something to David, just mail it to us. At the bottom left-hand corner of the envelope, just put David Jacoby or something so we know, you know not to open it. That's not for us. And what we'll do is we'll package all those up together, and then I'll ship them down to David for him. So, but, so that's a great thought. Thanks for asking about that. Uh, that is a good way you can do it. And with that positive note to end on, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up. In two days, you're going to hear part two of the David Jacoby interview. It's a whole nother hour. As far as where we're going from there, I'm not sure yet. I think I'd like to do at least one other episode to kind of wrap where we're at currently with season five. And then we're going to be moving into season eight, I think. Everything's really up in the air. Season eight's been a struggle to get off the ground because I can't travel. I can't go interview people. Um, so it's a little, it's been a little difficult. So not exactly sure what the next few weeks look like. All I can tell you is that there will definitely be episodes every Friday and every Sunday. And we're going to keep marching on until hopefully things get back to normal. Mike, Zach, guys, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. And thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show is created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. A big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G, and Zach is at Z to the Q. 
And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Skystream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. Skystream, TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Skystream and broadband minimum speed, 10 megabits per second, 18-month minimum term. Cut-off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday, 18 plus, terms apply.